<laughs> well, it really is. It's, um, it's great to be back with you. And, and as excited as I am to be here, I, I just want to say right up front, I, I don't have a, a particular passage that I felt led to share or any in-depth exposition of, of Scripture for you, but I do want to share a, a couple of challenges that God's been giving me since moving. And they're challenges that I, I think are valid for all of us, for, for the church, not just here or not just in Bristol, but, but the church across the world. So as I share what God's been pressing on my heart, my prayer is that it's something that will also challenge each of you. Because the truth is, there never really does come a point while we're still here where God's done with us. Is there? You know, we don't reach a point where either individually or as a fellowship, God comes along and goes, okay, that's it, guys. It's a, it's a wrap. We've done it. Um, he's always looking to take us further. And, and that's very much been the challenge I've been facing personally, that, that we've been facing as a family. Um, there are a lot of people who know us, who uh, both outside the church and inside the church, that, that looked at our move to Chippenham and, and said, uh, are you really sure about this? You know, it, really? And when we explained what was involved and what we were doing, um, I can kind of understand it because, you know, essentially we moved into a house we, we can't really afford. Vicky lost work she was doing here that, that we really couldn't afford her to lose. We moved away from, from friends and we moved away from family um, to go to a town where the only people we knew were the people in my workplace. And, you know, that's just me and, and Vicky and the kids. For the kids, they left friends that they'd grown up with, um, beaches just 15 minutes away, uh, to go to a new school where they had no friends, they didn't know anybody, and there were no beaches. So, and there really was, uh, sort of at the beginning, as some of you will know, there, there really was a a battle about that and there was a real tension and things that we had to work through and so on the surface it's it's really easy to see why there were quite a few people who were looking at what we were doing and going you know what are you crazy what are you doing it for but you know after nearly a year I can look back on it all and 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 say in all honesty Sammy, my, my eldest boy, has just blossomed and grown spiritually. He's, he's led uh, some of the house groups. He's doing philosophy and ethics. And his philosophy and ethics teacher said to him about three weeks ago, how are you doing? So he's doing the religious study, philosophy, ethics, sociology, and drama. And she said, how are you doing? And she's a Christian. And he said, I'm fine. Why? And she said, I'm, I'm just nervous that going through this course, your faith is being challenged. And he went, I like a good challenge. <laughs> I don't know where he gets it from. Um, but, you know, Timmy's joined a dance school up there where he's just shone. If any of you are on Facebook, ugh, um, you'll have seen posts from my wife if you're friends with her. Um, he's just... Sean, Emma's had the best school report I think I've ever seen. And although we still face into the challenges of work difficulties, money issues, and as my kids keep reminding me, no beaches, Vicky's um, generally spending less time in depression. She's spending more time with God. 
She's, she's not necessarily going to the church, but she's praying. And she's talking about how she feels God's presence in her life. Um, and to be honest, for me personally, I, I think I have shared the gospel and spoken about God more at work in the last six months than I have in all of my previous years put together. It's been, it's been amazing. It's awesome. Um, Freedom Church, you know, it's also had its challenges, but at the same time, it's so exciting. You know, we finished our first Alpha course. Um, four people that, that were outside of the church came to that. Um, several people have prayed to ask Jesus into their lives. We've started the Bible course, and I think last Wednesday we had 15, 16 people, and some of those who've never been associated with the church. Um, Joe Westlake, how many of you remember Joe? He came down and visited a couple of times when they've come down. He was 19 stone, very under pressure, very uh, feeling very insecure, is just radiant with the love of God. And it is genuine. I mean, he's lost three stone already. He's down to six. He'll catch up with me in a minute. Um, he's just shining for Christ. It's awesome. And I think all of us at the church feel convinced that God is in a process of preparing us for so much more. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm not even sure John knows what that's like. I keep talking to him and saying, so what are we doing? I don't know. Um, and that's not good for John. John likes to know. But, but what I do know is God is bringing to my mind uh, and has been bringing to my mind for some time a lot of characters in Scripture who, uh, when you look at it, uh, He's been making me look at their lives and making me think about some of the, the crazy, wacky stuff that he asked them to do. And, and what's worrying is whenever this happened, I don't know, had to, how many of you read your Bibles regularly? I'd, there better be a lot more hands than that. <laughs> if you read your Bibles regularly, do you ever find those times when God pulls stuff out and you, you, you kind of go in, why are you showing me that? And, and then a little bit down the line, he makes it clear why he was showing you that. Um, and that's what he's been doing. He's been taking me through scripture and showing me characters in scripture and showing me these wacky ideas. And I'm, I'm worried because I'm, I'm saying to God, why are you showing me this? What, what are you preparing me for? What are you preparing us for? What, you know, I'm mad enough as it is. You don't want me to get more wacky, do you? But let me give you some examples. So, Abraham, yeah? Who knows Abraham? Awesome. Uh, here's a man in Scripture that as soon as we meet him, he gets this instruction to get up and go to another land. So I can kind of relate to that. The difference between Abraham and me is he isn't told where it is, and he's not told how long it's going to take him to get there. But what I love about Abraham is he goes, yeah, okay then. So he packs up, takes everybody with him, and, and further down the line, he gets told that he's going to have a child. Now, that doesn't sound weird in itself, obviously, except for the fact that you read that him and, and his wife were both actually not quite young. They were quite old, um, and to top it off, his wife's barren. So 
Okay, maybe that's a little bit more crazy, but God's faithful. He said, you're going to have a child. They have a child and, and they have Isaac. He grows up, nice big strapping lad. And then God tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son. And you've got to look at that, haven't you? From a worldly perspective, you've got to look at that and go, that's just not right, is it? That's, that's crazy. But when you look back on the story and when you understand what happens and when you read how God spares Isaac, and, but he says to him, you know what, this is, this is really, this is a picture of me. This is what I'm going to do. This is how much I love you. And, and Abraham's known for his faith because he, even though it looked crazy, was willing to do what God asked. And it stands as this awesome picture in the Old Testament of God the Father and God the Son. And if you read the story, God the Holy Spirit, um, as that goes in. Um, that's just one character that God's been sort of stirring up in my heart. The other one was Gideon, and I like Gideon. You know, by Gideon's own confession, he belongs to uh, the tribe of Manasseh. And he says, I, I love the way the message puts it, he says that he was part of the weakest family. And in the message, he says, and I'm the runt of the litter. So he's like the, the, the weakest of the weak in the weakest of families in the tribe of Manasseh. And, um, but yet with God's help, he raises an army up of 32,000 men. And he's got to take these 32,000 men. Sounds a lot, doesn't it? Little runt, 32,000 men. But trouble is he's got to battle the Midianites and there's 135,000 of them. So that's a little bit crazy. But God then instructs Gideon to give a speech. Now, I don't know about you, I love movies, and if you think about some of the greatest speeches just before a battle, you might think about Mel Gibson in Braveheart. We've shown the clip here a few times. It's really annoying because he's uh, leading the Scots against the English. I'm English, and even I want to fight for him. It's, uh, it's an awesome speech. Or you might think, if you're a Tolkien fan of, um, is it Aragorn? Before the gates of Mordor, in Return of the King, and he uses this phrase, not this day. He talks about how they're going to die, but not this day, or how they're going to give in, but not this day. It's inspiring, isn't it? But they're just movies. But if you think about inspirational speeches of people like Churchill, Eisenhower, Patton, Montgomery, words that go out to the people to inspire them to fight for what they believe in. What was Gideon's speech? paraphrasing slightly, guys, if any of you are afraid, you can go home. 22,000 men looking at the Midianite army go, that'll be me, and off they go. Gideon's got 10,000 men, and you're thinking, you really are a nutter, aren't you? And that's still too many, and God says, you know what, go send them down to drink, and... um You know, a great way to decide who should stay in the army. Not the strongest, the fittest, the healthiest. But whether you lap the water like a dog or you scoop it up in your hands. 9,700 men lap it up like a dog and they're told to go home. Gideon's left with 300 men divided into three groups of 100 and they don't even go to battle with swords. They've got horns, empty pitchers and torches. Crazy. But if you think about it, staying with the battle theme, think about Joshua going into the promised land. 
He's told that he needs to take Jericho. Jericho was a huge fortified city. And of course, we all know that the best way to take a fortified city is by surrounding it, uh, holding it to siege. And if you need to actually take the city a little bit quicker, then it does help if you've got tanks, missiles, and explosives. Um, what was Joshua told to do? Well, he was told... You need to get your people together, walk around the city once every day for six days, and on the seventh day, walk around it seven times, and then do what? Blow your trumpets. Goodbye, Jericho. But it continues. You know, you look at the prophets. Ezekiel was brought to mind, and I was reading how, uh, as a demonstration to the people, Ezekiel was told to lie on his left side for 390 days. I move around a lot in my bed. Um, that's commitment. And then after that, he's told to lie on his right side for 40. And then when he's told to preach, he's not necessarily told to go preach to people or a person or a county, but he's, taught to go, he's told to go preach to the wind and to preach to the bones. Yeah, okay. Elisha rescues an axe from a river. Uh, do, do anyone know this story? He's out chopping wood. Axe head comes off. Bit of a problem. It was a borrowed axe. And axes, usually axe heads, water, not good. They sink. And uh, so, so Elisha, obviously, as a sensible person does, in order to raise the axe head, uh, doesn't jump in the water. He throws a stick in. Daniel. And his friends, my, my, three of my great buddies in scripture, Ratshak and Benny, uh, they're awesome. I love them. Don't laugh at Ratshak and Benny. Um, they refused the, the, the best food. They refused the best food and they go off and they eat vegetables. I think that's a challenge I might have failed. And then there's um, Hosea. And I, I just want to actually read this. So the, the prophet Hosea. Um, and I'm, I'm going to pull it up because, so Hosea's taught, told, you know, if you're a single Christian man, any single Christian men? One, two, couple. Yeah, if you're a single Christian man, I remember being a single Christian man. If you're a single Christian man and you're looking for a wife and you want God to tell you what kind of wife to go and get, what are you thinking about? So, you know, I... T- When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman. It's going to go well then. Have children with her. So he does. So Goma has a a daughter. um, uh, They have several children, but two of them. He he has a daughter and and God um, says, name her. And I can't pronounce it. It's a Jewish name. Lo Rama. Uh, and, um, and then that she has a son and God says name them Lo Amni so how many of you have ever gone out got your name and gone and looked it up and said what does that mean then anybody <laughs> interesting isn't it I did my name Michael means I love it it's a question who is like God and I love the question because I know the answer who is like God Nobody is like God. But can you imagine these two growing up? So, so, Daddy, what does my name mean? Well, daughter, your name means unloved. And your name, son, means not my people. 
Could you imagine trying to have that conversation with your spouse? What do you think we should name them? Unloved and not my people. If I'd have tried that with, well, that's just not going to happen, is it? But it doesn't, it's not just an Old Testament issue. Look at New Testament. The, the disciples are asked to go feed thousands of people. Remember that? Thousands of people. How much food do they have? Well, we've got this young kid's lunch over here. That'll do. Or the other one, and I'd never read, I'd been reading the Bible for years and I hadn't spotted this, or I've, I've, I've clearly read it and just totally missed it. But do you remember Jesus and Peter? I think it's in Capernaum when they go up and the, the leaders of the temple come down to Peter and they say, your master, does he pay temple taxes? And Peter immediately responds and goes, oh yeah. And then he goes off to Jesus and he goes, temple taxes? Um, we need to pay them. And Jesus has a discussion with him. I don't want to go into it. But, but ultimately, Jesus tells Peter to go down to the lake, cast in his line, and pull out a fish. What? So he does. He goes down. First fish he catches, four drachmas. Is it drachmas? Yeah. Or a silver coin, depending which translation you're reading. But essentially, it was enough to pay the taxes for Peter and for Jesus. I'm thinking, why doesn't God ever tell me to go catch a fish so I could pay my taxes? Um, it'd be great. You know, Scripture is full of situations where God's call or the call of God was to do something or to say something that in the eyes of the world just seems completely insane. And yet, in every single case, the result was for God's glory. Every situation was part of his plan. And what really made all of these people stand out is that they were willing to be obedient servants, regardless of how crazy it seemed. So my first challenge for all of us is, How willing are we really to be crazy for God? And don't misunderstand me. God's not looking for crazy people. He's looking for obedient followers who are not afraid to look crazy in the eyes of the world because they know that they are following God's plan. And what is God's plan. Well, simply put, it's the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How many of you have a knowledge of that power of God because of the cross? Foolish? Not in my life. People's lives change at the foot of the cross. It's at the cross that Jesus paid for our sins. We've been singing about it. 
It's the cross, uh, at the cross, where he won victory over death. It's at the cross that he demonstrates how much he loves us. You know, in the eyes of the world, it's madness. How can anybody win anything at all? At the cross. It's a place of death. It's all over. Done. But Jesus. In keeping with that thought. Says yeah you're right. It is done. It's beyond done. It's finished. To anybody. Who is willing. To put their trust in him. It is a life-changing, life-transforming place of grace and mercy and forgiveness that everybody needs to know about. Don't they? Even when you're on the bus and God says, go speak to that person over there and tell them I love them. Or you're walking down the street and you see someone in need and you know you get that little prod of the spirit and you go, can't you use someone else? I'm kind of busy, I'm in a hurry. Everybody needs to know about Christ and the cross and the price that he's paid and for what purpose he paid that price. You know, a lot of you know my testimony before I was saved. I was a, a, an addict for 11 years. Um, I was a gambler. I, I was actually quite out of control. And then I came to know Jesus at 27 in Russia, and my life changed. It didn't become perfect, but it changed. You know, but I think even after giving my life to Christ, even asking Jesus into my life, even knowing my Bible, even knowing the scriptures, even going to church and spending time with people around me, the reality is I've made a lot of mistakes. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my family. And God has been challenging me to come back to the foot of the cross. He's been reminding me that it really is the only place where all of this can be dealt with. You can go to self-help. You can go to counseling. I don't, I don't say that they're bad things. But you really want to deal with the issues in your life. The place to do it is at the foot of the cross. And so my second challenge today is do you need to come to the foot of the cross? You know, the really crazy thing, the thing that's really insane, and apparently this is quoted by Einstein. He says, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. 